Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're going to fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're going to stand, we stand as giants. If we're going to walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. It is Friday the 15th of July, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thank you for joining us. I want to invite you to visit MyFaithRadio.com if you haven't done so recently. If you've never done so, we got a welcome pack for you there. Um, and if you are familiar with the website, then you know it's a great place to go and check in on resources that we're currently giving away. Right now, we're giving away bundles of books over the course of the summer. Um, and so you'll want to go there and check that out, our big summer biggest book giveaway ever bundle up for summer. I like that. Um, And then also, I would really appreciate if you would go and share with us your faith radio story. So you have a story. There's a reason that you listen. There is something that you get out of Mornings with Carmen um, and and other programs uh, throughout the course of the day. And we would love to hear those stories. We'd love to hear how faith radio is actually affecting your life. How has God used faith radio um, or this program in particular, maybe there is uh, uh, a, a day or a time when just the right thing was said at just the right time to change how you thought about something or how you responded to an individual or um, allowed God to use you in a particular way. We'd love to hear those stories. So thank you for going to MyFaithRadio.com and sharing your faith radio story with us uh, today. little good news this morning. All 44 people who um, were swept away in the floods there um, earlier this week have been found, have been accounted for, alive, no fatalities. Um, And so we want to celebrate that today, no loss of life, but many people lost everything else. And so we certainly want to be praying for and coming alongside our neighbors. Um, I I heard a person yesterday um, who was... uh, affected by the derecho last year um, and was just saying, you know, I I still have so many of my neighbors who are just living in utter de- devastation and it seems as if the world has moved on in its concern. Um, and so let us be mindful that when these natural disasters happen, um, there are very, very long-term effects in the lives of individuals uh, and families and churches and communities. And so you know, let's do what we can where we are. I know that for me, where I live, that means that, you know, I, I need to go back down the uh, Highway 70 and check on the folks who were more impacted last year um, by the tornadoes earlier this year, the, by the tornadoes than we were. Um, we have largely recovered on our property, but I know that there are lots of people just down the road who haven't fully recovered. Or the folks that live just a little further away from me in a town called Waverly that had historic flooding, loss of property and and in that uh, case, loss of life. But the uh, the disaster near you might have been, um, you know, it, it might have been a snowstorm. It might have been a flood. It might have been um, a, a windstorm. It might have been a hurricane. It might now be years ago. It might have been a fire. My guess is that there is a community near you that has been affected by a natural disaster in recent days, weeks, months, or years. Why don't we check in on those folks? Don't we just check in with churches 
in those areas instead and just say, hey, we're um, we're mindful of this. Um, God brought you to mind today. And um, and I just wanted to reach out and tell you, we're still thinking about you. We're still praying for you. Is there a particular thing that you need now? Um, checking in makes a real difference. And so let's be doing that. Donald Trump's first wife, uh, the mother of Don Jr., Ivanka and Eric Trump, died in her Manhattan home. Uh, Ivana Trump was 73. Let's just be mindful of the fragility of life and the value of it. And let's be praying for um, those who loved her best in the world. Uh, It is no small thing to lose your mom. And so let's be uh, let's be praying um, for her family today. Um, Those and, and, and this brings to mind, right, the, the reality of the loss of life and the fragility of life and how valuable it is. And so let's be uh, prayerful and mindful of those um, families that we know that have lost loved ones recently. All right. We got a lot of other headlines to get to today, but uh, Bruce Ashford is waiting to talk with us. So let's get to that conversation next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We're going to talk with Bruce about not just critical theory, but the offshoots of critical theory. Like, it is a seed that bears all kinds of weird fruit. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Music is an indication that Dr. Bruce Ashford is back. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. It's great to be on the show again. All right. It's wonderful to talk with you. Uh, We hear critical theory, critical race theory. We hear this language, uh, CRT. We we don't actually know what anybody is talking about when we read those um, those letters or reference to that. So can you give us a little bit of a primer um, on critical theory and some of its offshoots? Yeah, sure can. So um, those of you out there in radio land, you probably over the past 10 or 20 years heard uh, something about the word postmodernism. So postmodernism 20 years ago um, was confined mostly to uh, universities and so forth. And it was kind of a, a way of thinking that said there's no such thing as truth. And there's no such thing as absolute right and wrong. And there's no such thing as absolute beauty. Uh, and, and so but postmodernism has evolved now because they got bored with their theory and they, they wanted to do something. And so critical theory, queer theory, uh, intersectionality, this is what postmodernism has become when it, when it comes to political activism. And what it focuses on is not what, what is right and wrong necessarily, or what is true or false, uh, because they don't think there is any of that stuff that's universal. What they do is they focus on um, identity politics, and they're like, "All right, what's my identity? Well, I'm a you know a such and such uh, minority, a woman. Uh, this is my sexual preference. Um, what are the different ways that society, uh, you know, kind of holds me down and oppresses me? And so it's a collection of grievances. And where do you want to start? Do you want to start with um, queer theory or intersectionality? Yes. Well, let's start with queer theory. I mean, I I, first of all, like there's a lot of people, Bruce, who they're just still not even really sure if we're supposed to say that word out loud um, or in polite company. But even like that word has gone through its own evolutionary experience in the last 20 years. Yeah. So queer used to be a slur. You know, if you called somebody queer, it meant they were gay and you were saying something negative about them. 
Well, queer is now a point of pride, okay? LGB, the LGBTQ movement, which is now the LGB, LGBTQIA movement, um, uh, pr prides itself on the word queer. Now, queer theory is not the same thing as gay rights. The gay rights movement from 20 years ago just basically said, hey, there are people in here, people in America who are same-sex attracted, men who like men, women who like women, they should have rights, all right? You shouldn't, you know, uh, you, you know, there shouldn't be violence against them. They should be accepted as part of society. They should be able to do what other people in society do. That is not what queer theory is. Gay rights have already been accomplished. Uh, gay Americans have had rights for decades now. Queer theory <coughs> is, very, is very different. And um, what, what queer theory does is it argues that all of Western society is built to put um, people who are different than people who are abnormal, people who are same-sex attracted, people who are transgender, you know, people who are pansexual, who are sexual, you know, uh, toward, you know, in, in multiple different ways that society puts them at a disadvantage. But society tells them that the norm is a man and woman together producing a baby. And they said, and what they want to do is they want to get rid of that as a norm. Say, that is not a norm. There's no such thing as normal. All right. So that's what queer theory is. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, it makes as much sense as it can make. Yes. Yeah. OK. Yeah. So um, so uh, the founding fathers of queer theory, uh, you know, their names are Gail Rubin, Judith Butler, Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick. And um, they make a lot of very confusing arguments. So on the one hand, they want to secure the rights of gay people. And when you're securing the rights of gay people, you're placing an emphasis on their gender. You're saying, well, this man uh, wants to be able to have a sexual relationship with men, so he should be allowed to. But on the other hand, they also want to say that gender is not a real category. Gender is socially constructed, you know, man and woman. This is just what, you know, what we think of as a man or what we think of as a woman has just been handed down to us traditionally in society. And so, what they want to do is engage in a process, I won't say the whole word here, but they want to engage in a process called gender effing, which is where they mess with or screw with, to put a, to give you a nicer version of what they say. They want to mess with or screw with our understanding of gender. They want to disrupt all norms so that we don't view heterosexuality as normal. So we don't, we don't view biological male as the norm for what it be, man means to be a man, uh, that we don't view biological female as the norm it, uh, for what it means to be a female, right? Because it's just as normal, they would say, for a man to become a woman or a woman to become a man. All right, so I know this is confusing stuff, and that's what they want to do. They want to confuse and complicate things. Um, All right, Bruce, we're going to we're gonna take a pause. Theory. We're going to take a pause and reconnect with you because um, you're 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 breaking up and I don't want anybody to miss um, any portion of what you're saying. So we're going to um, we're going to reconnect with Dr. Bruce Ashford. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. You can find what we're talking about today at bruceashford.net. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, 
It happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking about the truth. We're talking about standing in the truth, um, even when those around us deny that there is any truth upon which we could all stand. We're talking about critical theory, and we're talking about its offshoots, queer theory, intersectionality, um, other varieties of, uh, of things that you'll see in the culture um, and played out in politics. Bruce Ashford is our guide through this conversation. You can find a series of articles posted on this topic at BruceAshford.net. Um, Bruce, we need to take one step back before we walk forward together. Um, so maybe summarize um, your last yeah. point, part of which we missed um, because of the technology. Okay. Yeah, so queer theory is not the same thing as gay rights, all right? Uh, gay rights was just a, a, a movement in which um, you know, most Americans agree that people who are same-sex attracted, who are in gay relationships, should have the same rights that other Americans have. Queer theory is different. It wants to say that there is no such thing as normal. There are no predetermined categories. So uh, uh, what we view as male traditionally, which means a biological male who has male, you know, a male anatomy, that is not what male is. If you want to be a male, you can be a male whether you were born with male anatomy or not. And the same thing with a woman. So there's no such thing as a norm when it comes to male or female, according to queer theory. Also, according to queer theory, there's no such thing as a norm when it comes to sex. All right. And so the, the critique we would give of queer theory is queer theory rejects the Bible's teaching that we live in a predetermined world, that God put us in a world that has norms, that has moral norms, but also has biological and physiological norms. God created men to have a certain type of anatomy and a certain DNA, created women to have a certain type of anatomy and certain DNA, and he created sex to be between a, a man and a woman uh, within the bounds of marriage. Queer theory hates that. They hate living in a predetermined world, and they want to argue that our world is not predetermined, that we can make of ourselves whatever we wish. So that's queer theory in a nutshell. Yeah, and it feels a little bit like um, a version of Babel. Like, right, the where people want to, they really want to be the makers of them, their own themselves. Um, they want to deny the sovereignty of God. They want to deny um, certainly God's lordship uh, in their life day to day. And so it, it is an old, it is a new version of a very old story, this rejection of, of God's um, sovereignty over the self and then sovereignty over relationships, that God really does have a right as God, as the creator, right. um, to speak into the lives of his creatures. Yes, absolutely. Now, queer theory is uh, one branch of a whole family of critical theories, all right? And um, an, another family of critical theories uh, is, uh, outside of queer theory, is critical race theory which is closely connected with something called intersectionality. <clears throat> now, critical race theory is very different from the civil rights movement. Um, the civil rights movement argued, hey, black and brown Americans should have the same rights that white Americans have. And to a large extent, 
you know, anyone out here in radio land, we agree with that. I, would, I think that's a pretty good, uh, you know, assumption that I've got, that we agree with the aims of the civil rights movement. Critical race theory doesn't like the, the, civil, the old civil rights movement. Um, it does not agree with Martin Luther King Jr. What, uh, whereas Martin Luther King Jr. said, hey, we shouldn't pay attention to race that much. All right. We can affirm black and brown and white Americans as being of a certain race and recognize that they are of a certain race. But when it comes to how we're going to treat somebody, you know, we should not look at their race first. We, look at, we should look at the fact they're creating the image and likeness of God. Critical race theory says, oh, uh, 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 uh. that's not what we want to do. We want to foreground race. We would argue that race is a social construction, and they're right about that. Race is just something humans kind of made up. Um, there's no real definition of what race is. The Bible doesn't give any clear definitions of distinguishing one quote-unquote race from another race. But then they jump from that <laughs> to, um, to, to basically say we want to focus on racial groupings and then show the ways in which Western society is custom-built to undermine people of other races. And so that is what critical race theory does, is it focuses on, on ways, and these are ways that are not provable, ways that um, Western society speaks in ways that undermine black and brown Americans. We act in ways that undermine black and, and brown Americans. And um, so th this is where identity politics comes from. Now, intersectionality brings a lot more complexity to it. Intersectionality says, well, we should not only look at race, whether or not someone's black and brown and white, but we should look at gender, whether they're men or women or trans men or trans women. And we should look at, um, you know, all different kinds of aspects of a person's identity. And then what we should do, intersectionality says, <coughs> is we should take the people who've been at the top of the intersectional pyramid, which are white men, and we should turn the pyramid upside down and put those people at the absolute bottom so they'll know what it feels like. So the people who traditionally, they say, have had power, white men, are going to be at the bottom of the pyramid. And the people who have not had power, as they see it, which would be, for example, uh, you know, a black handicapped lesbian using uh, race and uh, physical capacity and sexual preference, a black trans, lesbian, who's handicapped, and we want to put them at the top of the pyramid where they have uh, more power. And one of the problems with intersectionality, it, it, they complicate things quite a bit, but it's really it's really a, a very simple program, which is just to turn whatever, whatever systems we have in society upside down. Um, they're unable to prove, there's really no proof that the hidden biases that they're talking about exist. Um, and so it's a it's a theory without proof. It's a conspiracy theory, if you will. Um, and it's an attempt to overturn everything in society. So, so how should Christians think of race theory? As I see it, we should agree with the original civil rights movement with people like Martin Luther King Jr. and fight for the rights of black and brown Americans. We should agree with the original feminism movement, which says that we should fight for the rights of women. And if we agree with the original civil rights movement, original forms of feminism, um, then we're going to disagree with critical race theory. That critical race theory sees racism as systemic and permanent. Um, it inflames resentment. Uh, and it is quite aggressive. Mm -hmm. So, so. Yeah, I and I think. I have a, no, I think, Bruce, you know, I think that the helpful, I mean, first of all, uh, 
we're hearing from folks online, you know, like it's just helpful to have uh, have the categories and have things explained. And that's that is just really helpful. I also think it's helpful um, to distinguish and these you have made these um, these distinctions. And, and this is helpful as well. You've distinguished um, queer theory from uh, gay rights and sort of wh- when we uh, when we thought we understood the born this way movement, which the which queer theory is just not. It's completely different than that. And that is really helpful. And then the distinction between critical race theory from the civil rights movement is also very, very helpful, because, um, you know, if I were to say that this handicapped trans person of color should replace this white man because of some um, skill set, merit, value add, whatever, whatever the conversation is about. I'm not making that judgment because the one person is white and male and cisgender, heterosexual, and I'm and I'm or I'm not making the decision because the other person is handicapped, trans or person of color. Like I'm I'm making the decision because there is some value, some merit, some expertise, some experience that this person brings to whatever it is that we're talking about. And so we want them to be the person like, right. It's not because of their physicality. It's because of of other factors. And so I think all of that is very, very helpful. Um, And that really helps me understand intersectionality. Um, and and how it grows out of critical race theory and the relationship of critical race theory to the civil rights movement, of which I am, you know, very supportive. I mean, I am one of those people who absolutely uh, claims and understands uh, that from creation to the cross to the kingdom of heaven, regardless of the color of your skin, we all stand on equal footing. No question about it. Made in the image of God, every single person. Um, and so thank you. Um, thank you for helping us sort through some of this. You guys can go to bruceashford.net and get a, an entire series of articles. It's the FAQ series um, from Bruce. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. All right, I got a lost and found uh, story for you today before we talked with Dan DeWitt. Van Gogh, that would be Vincent Van Gogh. You recognize his name. Um, And a Vincent Van Gogh self-portrait has been discovered hidden behind another painting. But the story is more interesting and complicated than that. Um, This previously unknown self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh discovered behind, um, actually on the back of another painting. So the painting that, you know, is is out there on tour on the market is called Head of a Peasant Woman. But when experts in Edinburgh um, took an X-ray of the canvas ahead of an upcoming ex- exhibition, they saw another um, painting. And so they had to remove um, layers of glue and cardboard that had been... Um, put on the back of the head of the peasant woman um, painting, you know, over over a century, right? They People put all kinds of things on the back of a painting to reinforce it, right, to make it p- suitable for framing. Well, Van Gogh had used um, the reverse side of a canvas to save money. Uh, and so the head of a peasant woman is painted on the reverse side of a Van Gogh self-portrait. And so... Um, A few things come to mind here. First of all, that which is lost or covered up 
is going to be revealed. You know, everything hidden is going to come to the light. Uh, and, and even if you feel like the way in which you have represented yourself, in this case, a self-portrait, has been covered up and ignored, God sees through all of that. God sees through all of that, all those layers. And God sees you. I'm going to leave that right there. Dan DeWitt is up next. We're going to talk about our worldview, the lens through which we are looking at things. We're going to talk in particular about pride. What What is the greater pride? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Joining us now, Dan DeWitt. You can find what we're talking about at theolatte.com. Dan, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. How are you doing? Good morning. I, I am well. It is well with my soul. How about you? I am enjoying God's wonderful, glorious gift of coffee as we speak. So I have a, a, mm. a great cup of coffee that I'm enjoying right now. What constitutes a great cup of coffee for Dan DeWitt? You know, so it has to be um, a a coffee provider that really cares about coffee. And so it's preferably a single origin coffee that's coming from a very specific part of the country, often seasonal. And so right now what's seasonal is a a, a Colombian coffee I really like. And then you have to freshly grind it. You asked, Carmen. So I'm telling you. you Well, here's why. (laughs) Here's why I ask. Here's why I ask. Because um, can I can I keep a bag of coffee beans, you know, like in my you know, now I'm going to give myself away here in my uh, a closet, my apocalypse closet. Can I keep a bag of? How long can I keep a bag of coffee beans in there? I mean, I, I'm clearly going to offend your sensibilities by even having a bag of coffee beans. Well, I will say this: if there's a zombie apocalypse and they decide to like take all the coffee, um, I would have a cup of coffee with you from your beans that have been in there for some. G- Godless amount of time. Uh, that's my concern. My concern is I have. You know what? I'm just going to start labeling my coffee that way. To the coffee, to the coffee. I won't call you snobs. To the to the coffee purists out there, my coffee is um, is always going to be considered by you godless. It's okay. All right. <clears throat> so, um, when asked if he could preach only one sermon in life, G.K. Chesterton responded, "How." He said it would be a sermon against pride, and the, this topic is one of those topics that as soon as we hear it come up, I guess I can't speak for anybody else. I'll speak for myself. When I hear the, t- the word mentioned, I immediately think it's about someone else. <laughs> so we, th- we immediately, our thoughts go to someone that we see as kind of arrogant or you know their self-worth is, is, is higher than it should be. And what Chesterton was getting at is this is a problem that we all need to deal with. And it's a bigger problem for a far bigger problem for any of us than we realize or would care to admit. So Lewis talked about um, pride being the great sin Um, that would come from mere Christianity. How, How do you know if you're proud? Lewis said that if you want to know if you're proud, he, he said to quote from mere Christianity, ask yourself these questions. 
how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or patronize me or show off? And those are the moments where we feel like we're not noticed, where we're not, you know, given credit. How much does that bother us? And our answer to that is going to be proportionate to, um, you know, the level to which we're dealing with pride. And again, we all struggle with this. Um, but what Lewis talks about here is how pride is inherently com- competitive. And so we're always um, in competition. And Lewis points out that's why that two people in the same trade, um, it could be very hard for them to agree because they see each other as competition. And as someone who teaches, ha- has taught and continues to teach at Christian universities, I would love to say that, you know, this kind of pride and this kind of competition is somehow lacking or, you know, we've matured beyond it um, with a Bible faculty or, you know, in a Christian organization. But the reality is this is just a part of the human dilemma in a fallen world that we're constantly competing with others to get a little more attention, to make a little more noise, to be a little more noticed. And the moment it doesn't go our way, the moment someone else is getting noticed or someone disregards us and our all of a sudden our defenses pop up, that should be a, a red flag warning to us. We, we have a bigger pride issue than, than we realize. Okay, so here is a conversation I had recently um, with a young woman who... You know, I would describe her as a very successful podcaster, but, you know, she's not she's not successful uh, at the level, you know, that other people are, let's say. But she's really good and her content is very good. And her dilemma is that she's not interested in making a name for herself. She wants to make the name of Jesus famous and everything that she says and does. But in the culture today, that means she has to become a brand. It is so hard. This is such a difficult, Mm -hmm. difficult balance for Christians in the culture today. This is a challenge for you and me, Dan. Like, right. I'm 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 currently like struggling. Do I, quote unquote, rebrand my my own website with my own name? Because people can more easily find find me by my own name than they can by anything else. But I don't want to make a name for myself. I want you know, I want to make Jesus famous. I want to be exalting Jesus, not me. So do you, it's so hard. This is so hard. Oh, it absolutely is. And, you know, it, on the one hand, like I understand why, you know, advertisers and publishers want to know the reach of your platform. So I know there's a business model that, you know, a publisher should ask you if you want to publish a book, how many Twitter followers do you have? How many Facebook followers do you have? Um, because they're wanting to know, you know, when you promote this, how many people might you plausibly reach? But the challenge for us who have the opportunity to be in public spaces is that we, you know, instead of seeing our platform as intended for a certain purpose, glorifying God, um, equipping the saints, um, and that the larger our platform gets, you know, reasonably, the more people we could influence for good things. But when we start seeing the platform is mainly about advancing ourselves and it's hard not to because that's it's at the heart of building a platform. Your, your name is attached to it. So I, what I want to do is say, and this would relate to people who don't have podcasts and people who don't, you know, aren't trying to publish books, that we all can relate to this. And I would want to parse out wanting to grow your influence for the opportunity for the gospel is not a bad thing, but it's also a dangerous thing. And so what you don't want to do is be buried in false guilt about wanting to to do a good thing. But on the other hand, um, you need to be very clear about your your heart. 
And what C.S. Lewis said, he goes on with pride to say, if we get to the place where we throw up our hands and say, I don't care what anybody thinks, that's not because we've been liberated from pride, but rather we've fallen to the greatest pride of all. Lewis says this desire to have influence and the desire to be competitive can be a negative thing, but it's a far lesser vice than the pride that says, I just don't even care anymore, and I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to do it how I want. And Lewis said that is the greatest pride of all. All right, repeat that. Lewis said that the greatest pride of all is, let's distinguish that one more time, because I think that's really helpful. Lewis says, when, and I'll quote him here, he says, when you delight wholly in yourself and do not care about the praise of others at all, you've reached the bottom. That is why vanity, though it is the sort of pride which shows most on the surface, is really the least bad and most pardonable sort. The vain person wants praise, applause, admiration too much. Um, and then Lewis goes on to say that when you say you don't care about others, he describes mm-hmm. it as the real black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. Yeah, or you do not, and you do not care what becomes of them. This falls in, this, this like arrives, I think, for those of us that are evangelical Christians, this brings me to that critical point where, you know, I have to ask, do I actually care that other people are going to hell? Mm. Like, do I... I mean, do do I really care? Um, because if I believe that heaven and hell are real and I'm not interested in sharing the good news of how to get um, to heaven, like how to spend eternity in the presence of the living God um, and have substantial healing now, not only in my relationship with God, but with myself and others, if I'm not really interested in other people sharing heaven with me and avoiding hell, then my pride is pretty deep. Because I think that, yeah, Jesus didn't just die on the cross um, for for me. He died there just for me. Like, that's a total perversion of the gospel. That, and it's Lewis called it—he <clears throat> called pride, excuse me—he um, calls it the anti, complete anti-God state of mind. And that's mm. where pride wants to take us. And what we have to do is to be very, very um, aware as much as the Spirit allows us to be. And the Spirit indeed wants to, to mortify or to kill in us the things that keep us from living a God-centered life. So we want to be acutely aware of the pride in our life, asking God to help us see it, to, to move away from it. But we need to be cautious not to be pride detectors in the lives of others. Mm-hmm. For most of us, we, we have a Ph.D. in detecting pride in others and we're kindergartners when it comes to detecting pride in ourselves. Well, amen to that. All right, we are going to continue our conversation um, here with Dan DeWitt in just a moment. Debunking Christianity. Is Christian belief mere wishful thinking? Is the faith of the New Testament based on blind allegiance to an irrational worldview? Let's talk about that next. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of what we do on live radio every day. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you at MyFaithRadio.com. Right now, we're inviting you to share your Faith Radio story. What do you love about Faith Radio? What do you love about Mornings with Carmen? How has this program changed the way you think or the way you live, the way you engage others in the conversations of the day? We really do want to hear from you. 
Your story could encourage someone else and certainly glorify God. So share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leave us a message today. Again, thanks for listening. This is a new day. Everything bursting with hope. Coming alive. Moment, moment. Continuing our conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can find what we're talking about at theolatte.com. Um, Dan, first of all, uh, love that you're still putting together the Worldview Reader for us, appreciating the articles you've got posted there, books for us to read. Um, always appreciate that. Um, love uh, love to talk with you about um, a piece that you wrote, uh, posted at theolatte.com, called Debunking Christianity. Um, what, what's the... What's the cause behind, like what was the inspiration behind or the question behind this piece? And then where do we go? Yeah, I think so. This is a response to I was listening to William Lane Craig's podcast, which I would just commend to anyone who's listening. William Lane Craig is a Christian philosopher and an apologist and author who's helped thousands and thousands of people think about their faith. So I actually have not only this article that links to his podcast, but I've promoted a book by him in this this edition of the Worldview Reader, and then also a video that is giving kind of a creative, what takes one of his arguments and presents it in about four minutes in an animation that's really clever and helpful. But William Mike Craig, in his a recent podcast, responds to what I would describe, to use my own term here, um, as passive-aggressive atheism. And so he's responding to an author, Richard C. Miller, who's just talking about Christianity and, and kind of loading some of his definitions in a way that if you're not careful, someone might hear and think, okay, he's describing, he doesn't believe in God, but he's just kind of giving this neutral description of Christianity. And what Craig points out is, no, this is actually really loaded with presuppositions. Um, it's actually indefensible in light of the evidence. And the specific claim, the title of the article by this atheist author is called Biblical Theism and the Demise of of modern Christianity. And he describes Christianity as a system of cultic tall tales, myths, and legends to be accepted despite lacking um, lacking and contrary evidence. And what Craig points out is we have to be cautious here because the evidence actually stands against this claim that Christianity is itself a myth and a cultic tall tale. So while Richard Miller is within his rights to reject Christianity, um, what he can't do is define it in a way that is contrary to the historical evidence. So when when we think about the ways in which non-Christian people talk about, and in this case, write about um, the faith that we possess, adhere to, walk around in, live out of— um, how how do you see us responding to that? Because, I mean, there, there, there is a part of me, Dan, that just wants to roll my eyes at guys like this. Like, and yet my heart, my heart is broken, right? He's living yeah. in the dark. He's not just living in the dark and in denial. He is very publicly um, setting himself up as anti to Christ, an adversary. I mean, he's he's an open public adversary. Like, that's a little bit easier to see than yeah. maybe the person who is putting on uh like christ as a put on right they're cloaking themselves in the language of christianity but they don't believe like so the functional atheist is more dangerous maybe than this very very public atheist 
But what do you do? I mean, how do you respond, which is what you've done in debunking Christianity? So how, how do you respond? Yeah, I think that on this, I would want to say, let's look at his allegation and just ask, does it seem to line up with the evidence? And I'll give another example of a book that was very popular by an author named Reza Aslan, who wrote a book called Zealot. And he made the claim that the biblical authors, that they um, weren't concerned with historical accuracy, that they didn't, um, they mingled myth with reality. And so their goal wasn't to present a historical account of Jesus, but rather to give this highly colored, um, personal, mythological picture of Jesus. So take that allegation and ask, does that seem to line up with the the data? Even if we were to limit what we were going to consider to the New Testament, we'll see that the biblical authors like Luke make it really clear that he cares about historical accuracy. Now, that doesn't mean Christianity is true or that you have to say, oh, I'll become a Christian now. But what you can't say is that he didn't care about history. Furthermore, um, when people like Richard Miller or Reza Aslan or even, you know, popular level atheist on Facebook or YouTube say things like that the early disciples really just were taking this some kind of myth and they were tying it in with their belief in Jesus, we have to consider what they how they described it. So, for example, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cunningly devised tales or myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's saying, look, what we're talking about here, we're distinguishing from myth, and we're actually rooting it in eyewitness testimony. Now, you may say he's lying, but what you can't say is that he's comfortable mingling myth with fact, or that he doesn't care about truth and history. So I think we take the allegation and ask, does it line up with the evidence? And in this case, the evidence overwhelmingly shows the disciples actually believed they saw Jesus after the crucifixion, and that transformed the way they lived. So I want to highlight a person you just um, made reference to whose name is likely familiar with people, even if they can't place it. um, Reza Aslan is a CNN documentary series host. He's um, he's an author. And and the book that you referred to, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, is a New York Times bestseller. Um, And he is uh, really celebrated in the culture as a, quote, expert in world religions. But he's clearly anti-Christ, like openly, vociferously Mm anti-Christ. Um, and there's a difference, you know, like, right, I'm making a distinction there in my language. And so I, I hope everybody hears it. I'm not saying he's the Antichrist. I'm saying he is Antichrist. He is making very public, frequent um, commentary, denying the reality of uh, the life Jesus lived um, and and the cause and purpose of it. And certainly uh, any salvific um, effect of Jesus's death on the cross. Um, And so when you think about people that the world makes famous, and this sort of gets back to the pride conversation Mm. as well. I mean, Reza Aslan has really made a name for himself as a world religions expert, but he's clearly not an expert in the things of Jesus. Yeah, you know, there was a video that went viral of him on Fox News where he was asked, kind of unfortunately, by uh, um, one one of the hosts, you know, why would you as a Muslim write a book about Jesus? And the, the host was trying to kind of discredit him for even writing about Jesus. And that video went viral um, because of the unfortunate question. But what 
took a few days for people to start figuring out is Reza Aslan was claiming to be an expert with a PhD in, in, in the study of, um, of religions and to teach, be a professor, um, in the history of religions. And what came out days after that was actually, um, while an unfortunate question, Reza Aslan's area is actually creative writing. And um, he does have some degrees in religious studies, but the area he teaches in is creative writing. And the book, Zealot, is filled with um, some historical inaccuracies, I would argue some bad logic. And the biggest thing is it's built on an outdated thesis, and the thesis is the same thing, the basic core belief that it's unpacking is the same thing in the article I linked to here, that the early disciples were comfortable mixing myth with fact. And that's a thesis that's been rejected and discredited um, because the evidence shows they actually believed the things they were writing about. Now, you could say they're lying. You could say it's all false. But what you can't say is that they were comfortable mixing the two. And there's a number of atheist scholars who will point out that there are historical facts about Jesus. Um, and even though they deny God, they believe that these historical facts actually did happen, like that Jesus lived, he died under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, um, and they, the disciples believed they saw him after the crucifixion. There's a number of non-believing scholars who recognize that. And so even if you reject that Jesus rose from the dead, you can't say they, the disciples didn't believe they saw him, and they were not comfortable mixing myth with, with Jesus. So helpful. Debunking Christianity is the piece. You can find it at theolatte.com. Daniel DeWitt, thank you so much for joining us today, as always. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. You too. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. I appreciate uh, the feedback on the text line this morning. Remember, you can text me anything, anytime during the show, 877-933-2484. If you're listening on the podcast and you want to communicate with me, email is actually the best way because I don't know if you send me a text, uh, I don't know when you're listening and maybe what you're listening to. So email is the best way. If you're listening to this via podcast, my email address is carmen at myfaithradio.com. Yeah, I know that's pretty pretty hard to remember and catchy. Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. If you can't text during the show, which I certainly invite you to do at 877-933-2484. Hey, that web address, MyFaithRadio.com, is where you go to uh, sign up for the big, the biggest book giveaway ever. It's our bundle up for summer book giveaway. We're also interested in hearing your faith radio story. So what's your story related to faith radio? Share it with us at my faith. Thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with Carmen LaBerge from faith radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google play music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.